Well, good morning. I'm, I'm not sure what it is about us. I don't know what's wrong with us. Maybe it's, you know, our memories have all gone bad. Even in our 30s, we have what my mom calls senior moments. Um, maybe we're ignorant. We've never actually been taught what's true. Or may maybe for some of us, we've actually been taught harmful, wrong things, uh, false doctrines that are contrary to truth. Um, but something doesn't line up in our lives. Because if I were to say to you, if I was to say to a different church who actually talks during a church service, not you guys in particular, but some imaginary church. If I were to say to you, God is good, most of you would respond, all the time, right? And then I say, all the time, and some of you, God is good, right? And, and most of us actually believe that when we're sitting here on Sunday morning, that God is good all the time. And then we hit a little speed bump in our life, a little inconvenience, and we're, we're not so certain of the doctrine we just confessed. Why does my car have a dead battery? I thought God was good. Or we hit a severe affliction, unspeakable suffering, a dark night of the soul that turns into dark days in a depressive fog, and we don't believe that anymore. If, if God was actually good, this never would have happened to me. We immediately forget who God is and what he does. I, I'm not the only one, right? That, that's all of us. So all I want to do this morning is simple. I want to remind us all of the goodness of God. And we're, we're going to do that from just one verse. It's Psalm 119, verse 68, pretty much the dead center of the Bible. Go ahead and open there. Um, it's not going to be difficult, right? Once we read the verse... I mean, as I'm reading it, you will clearly see my outline. Three points will apply in a couple ways, and then I'm done. Here's where we're going. Point one, God is good. Point two, God does good. Point three, God teaches us goodness, not the other way around. Um, so we're in Psalm 119, verse 68. Um, I'll read the entire psalm to get the context. I'm just kidding. Some of, us, some of us got that joke. As you may know, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in all of Scripture. It's 176 verses. You have 22 individual sections of eight lines or eight verses, um, one for each letter of the alphabet, the, the Hebrew one, not the English. That's why it's 22. Um, so, um, you know. Each of the lines in each of the sections or the stanzas starts with the same letter. So verses 1 through 8 all start with Aleph. 9 through 16 are Beit, uh, Gimel, Dalet, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, that's what those weird headings are above each section. They're the, they're the Hebrew letters that start each line. Uh, but let me read our section. We'll, we'll start in verse 65, but again, we're only going to hone in on verse 68 for the sermon. So Psalm 119, verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Here we go. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. 
Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So I already mentioned, all I want to do this morning is to look at verse 68. I want to show us three things about God, specifically about his goodness, so that we'll actually live in light of that goodness instead of forgetting it, especially as we relate to God and our circumstances and to, the, and to others around us. So what are the three things that this verse teaches us about God? First, God is good. You see this in the text, right? Verse 68, you are good. It doesn't take a lot of explaining to get how I get my point from this verse, right? I'm not going to spend any time. You, you see it. It's plain. Of course, it doesn't say God has goodness. It says that God is good. You know, Spurgeon would say this is the difference between a, a vessel made of stone or wood or ceramic that's coated with gold and one that's made of gold through and through. One of them has gold, the other is gold. God is good through and through. It's an essential attribute of who he is. God is good. So let's do a little bit of theology together, some deep thinking about God. You know, maybe we need to take a deep breath. I'm going to throw us into the deep end of the pool here. I won't let you drown. I think this is going to be beneficial. I think you might actually enjoy this. So, the modern way of thinking about the attributes of God, the wrong way, I would say, is we take anything that we think God is like, whether from scripture or experience or our own speculation, and we kind of think of these as different slices of the pie, right? One day you might be served up the slice of goodness. Another day you might be served up a slice of wrath. Um, you know, you have slices of his omnis, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. Um, they're all there, and God can kind of serve up whatever slice of his character he wants. And it's a natural way to think. That's how we act, right? Um, on any given day, I can be good and patient, or I can be impatient and angry, and my kids get to experience whatever slice of the pie of dad they get that day. You can be wise or you can be foolish. It depends on the choice. And we tend to think of God in our image, maybe with a little bit more self-control. And so we have this conglomeration of attributes that we call God, right? He may or may not be the sum of his parts, right? Because it, it, is, is God just or is God merciful? Well, it depends on what slice of divine pie you're served that day. That's not a good way to think about God, um, it, it, it's not how the church has historically thought about God. Rather, instead of saying God has attributes, the way we want to talk is God is attributes. Um, the, the theological term here, if you're into that kind of thing, is we're talking about the doctrine of divine simplicity. That is, God is one thing, not many parts put together. So let's keep the pie analogy. Everybody loves pie. Um, but we're going to shift the analogy. We're not talking about slices. Maybe we want to talk about ingredients, right? In every slice of pecan pie, you're going to have all of these ingredients, right? You're going to, you don't get a slice of egg and then a slice of corn syrup, a slice of brown sugar, a slice of vanilla. Um, 
No, when you, when you eat a slice of pecan pie, you get all of them, all mixed together in every single bite. It all has brown sugar, it all has pecans, everything else. Every bit of pie is all of its ingredients all the time. God is his attributes, all of them, all the time. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And so here's what I'm, what I'm getting at, right? We need to understand this. Goodness isn't something God has. Goodness is something God is. It's a difference of saying to God, you are completely good and everything you do is good, or you have the ability to do good, and that goodness may or may not shine through in any given situation. Right? Um, I, I have a dry, sarcastic sense of humor that may or may not shine through in any given situation, whether it's appropriate or not. But no one would say that it, you know, dry wit is at the core of what makes me, me. I, I have it, but it's not me. But, but the psalmist is saying God is good. Like John would say over in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. God is good. In him is no badness, no evil, whatever the, the opposite of goodness is at all. Goodness isn't a slice of who God is. It's who God is. It's one of his main ingredients through and through. God is good in every aspect, in every action. He's wholly good, only good. Can't be anything beside being good. It's who he is and what he is. Of course, there's more ingredients in the character of God, right? He's not one note, one dimension. But in this verse, right, we're focused on the goodness of God. And anything else he is is going to be colored, to be stained. It's going to be, it's going to be flavored by his goodness, right? You don't eat a slice of pecan pie and say, this just tastes like pecans with no vanilla. No, the pecans taste like vanilla, and the corn syrup tastes like pecan. They're, they're not easily separable because every ingredient is layered onto the others, so you have all of them all the time. This is fantastic news because there's consistency in God. We can sing, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. God's not going to be someone tomorrow that he isn't today. He's never going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed and act different than who he's always been. God can't sweep aside his goodness and have a day off, right? No, his, his goodness is who he is. What good and encouraging news is the character of God? It also means, I'll, I'll take this rabbit trail, that, that we need to be careful in calling things attributes of God, right? Because I, tend, I mentioned earlier, we tend to um, just take anything and call it an attribute of God. It's, it's pretty willy-nilly the way we think about our Father. But what if we call wrath an attribute of God, right? Um, if we think about wrath, just for an example, that means we're saying that God is always wrathful in everything, and nothing he does is ever separated from wrath. So when God creates, that's an act of wrath. When God redeems, it's an act of wrath. When God said to Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, those were words of wrath. And that just doesn't really line up, does it? 
So it causes us to ask, is, is wrath an attribute of God? Is it essential to his being, without which he would cease to be God? Or do a lot of the things we experience, are they, are they secondary, not essential to God? Something, you know, is it the outplay of something more foundational, more basic, more essential, like God's holiness, or his justice, or his love? Because wrath is what happens when holiness and justice and love encounter evil. I mean, I'm convinced that some of our coldness in our relationship with God is because we, we don't quite understand who he is. We think of God as primarily an angry judge or as a wrathful, I don't know, prosecutor. But those things are secondary. They're, they're not essential. They're not what make God God, it's, it's the outplay of some more essential things. And so if we think deeply about who God is in his core essence, if we think theologically, at least for me, it, it's not some ivory tower hair splitting that I do with you know, Puritans in my office. For me, it's incredibly devotional to think of God rightly so I can worship him and love him correctly. And so, I mean, I get it. Ironically, the doctrine of divine simplicity is complex, right? <laughs> it's not simple to understand. Um, but the way I tend to think about it is if, if you could somehow rewind the tape before Genesis 1, before there's any creation, um, before there's even time, you know, we're in the table of contents, I guess, now, if you're looking in your Bible. Um, what, what was God doing outside creation when all there was was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What was God like then? Because we know he doesn't change. So whatever he was like before creation, he still is. And when all there was was Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling in happy harmony for an eternal past, what was true of God then is still true of him today. And those, when it's only him, are his essential core attributes. Things like love and power or goodness, right? When we say God is good, we're saying for all eternity, God is good and will be good. There is no variation or shadow in his character due to change, which leads us to the second point. Since God is good, everything he does is good, right? Point two, God does good. So we have God is good, God does good. Um, again, it's obvious, verse 68, you are good and do good. God does good. Um, I don't intentionally teach bad theology to my kids. I'm not teaching them divine simplicity yet either. Um, but we will occasionally sing with hyperactive, huge, loud motions that my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, and there's nothing my God cannot do. Which is great. It's good and well. Until you read, I don't know, Titus 1, 2, where Paul says, and God, who cannot lie, you're like, wait a second. The cucumber said there's nothing my God cannot do. But Paul is saying God cannot lie. And so we come to this existential crisis of do I trust Paul or do I trust the produce? And we don't know what to do. Um, obviously, trust God. Um, this is pure speculation here. I think it just ruins the song 
if you say, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do, except for things that would contradict the nature and character of God. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't flow as well. It's not as snappy. So, you know, we're not, we're not canceling the song in our house. But, but it's true, right? God's character is a standard of his actions. As uh, 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us, God cannot deny himself. He can't do anything that's contradictory to being God. Because God is God, because God is good, everything he does is good. He can't not be himself. His character defines his actions. God cannot lie, Titus 1.2, because God's character is one of truthfulness and holiness and righteousness. And God cannot do evil or do bad or any, do anything even less than good because he is good. I mean, we rejoice that God can do all things. And I get what we're saying, and I rejoice with us too. But what about the things God cannot do? Those, those are pretty good news too. Um, a few years back, uh, Jackie Hill Perry wrote a book called Holier Than Thou. It's all about the holiness of God. And usually when I pick up a book about the holiness of God, I expect it to be a hammer hanging above me, just ready to squash me at any sort of sin or misstep. But what she does is she highlights the goodness of God's holiness. Here's her argument. She says, since God is holy, it means God cannot sin. Another thing God can't do. And since God can't sin, that means God can't sin against you. And so one of the things that separates God from everyone else in your life is that you can trust him completely because he's never going to sin against you. Anyone else you trust is going to sin against you at some point, but God is the most trustworthy, the only fully trustworthy being in all of existence because he can never turn on you. Because of God's holiness, when he says he is for you, he is absolutely for you. It would be impossible for him to do anything different. And because of God's goodness, following that same logic, everything he does is good. It's impossible for him to do differently. He can't do bad to you. He can't do evil to you. He, it would be a betrayal of his character. He would cease to be God. So when God says to his exiled, suffering people that he knows his plans for them, Jeremiah 29, 11, plans for good, for welfare, and for not for evil, to give them a future and a hope. He actually means it. He can't do anything that's not good for them. The fact that God is God means that he is good and he does good. Or if you're like, that's an Old Testament promise, I'm not in Babylon. I, I don't think that's a legitimate criticism, but we'll make it easy. Romans 8.28, so that beloved New Testament verse that says a similar thing, that says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So if you're in Christ, that means everything that happens, God is working for your good. It's not just getting to good eventually by a blind chance or coincidence, but by God's good, specific, sovereign design. Even if we don't see it now, we know this is who God is, and this is what he does. We might not understand the pieces that work together for good, but we know that the unfailing goal is always good. Reminds me of the story of the old preacher who showed up at a men's prayer breakfast. This is what happens when you live in Kentucky for 10 years. 
somebody, you know, he asks some old man, doesn't know him, to, to pray. So the old man stands up, and everyone bows his, their head, and he begins to pray. He says, Lord, I hate buttermilk. Preacher opens an eye. What, what is going on here? Old man continues, Lord, I hate lard. Preacher, he's getting worried, right? But without missing a beat, the man prays on. And Lord, you know how much I hate raw white flour. And the preacher's about to stand up and just call it. But he goes, but Lord, when you mix them together and bake them up, you know I sure do like them biscuits. The Lord, you know, he says, so Lord, when things come up we don't like, when life gets hard, we just don't understand what you're saying to us, we need to relax and wait till you're done mixing. And it will be something surely better than biscuits. Amen. Um, text says nothing about my illustrations being good or my southern accent. It says that God is good. But, but the point stands, right? Maybe we don't like where we are in the process of goodness being formed in us and for us. But God works all things for good. If we know him, his works, his ways, then we can endure. We know the end goal. We don't need to doubt. We don't need to fret. We can certainly still cry and lament because life is hard and things are heavy. But ultimately, we know the God who is on the throne, who is sovereign. He's told us who he is. He's good. He's told us what he's like. He's good. He's told us what he's doing. It's good. So even if we can't trust our circumstances, we can trust the God who holds them all in his hands. He will do good. It's impossible for him to do otherwise. We don't need to tell him, how he should act for good, or what it would look like to be good. He knows. He knows goodness far better than you do. And he's working for your good more than you are working for your own good. I remember reading it. I, uh, I can't find the actual quote. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in Tim Keller's, just his excellent book on prayer. But again, I can't, can't find it exactly. But someone was asked, hey, do our prayers actually change God's mind and his plans? And he responded, if they did, I'd stop praying. Because there's no way that our own plans are going to be better than God's plans. We make plans out of partial goodness, out of limited wisdom, with a very small perspective. But God makes our plans out of full wisdom and full goodness and full love and full sovereignty. He works for good far more than we do. And so by faith, we trust that God is good and does good. And we are satisfied with that truth. Which leads us to our third point. God teaches us goodness. You are good and do good teach me your statutes. It's not a surprising request for a psalmist. If you're, if you're uh, familiar with Psalm 119, by my count, about 13 times through the psalm, we have this request, like, teach me your ways, teach me your statutes, instruct me in your law, th things like that. You know, explicitly in more than half of every stanza, we have this request, teach me your ways. Um, the let me. The first year or two of marriage for, for Chrissy and me was incredibly difficult. Um, not because of anything in our relationship, that, that was great, but because our lives were marked by loss. We, we were quickly 
thrown out of the honeymoon phase into this season where we attended funerals for her dad, for three grandparents, for one of our beloved elders in our church, for a close family friend. I'm sure there was more. It was all, I don't know, maybe in 18 months, relatively short succession. And so we're just trying to settle in and start our life together, but we couldn't catch our breath between waves of grief, one on top of another. And I remember either having the thought, or maybe it was a conversation, of thinking like, praise God that my faith is intact through all of this. I, I had no doubt that God is good and does good. I, I believed, I hung on Abraham's words in uh, Genesis 18, I think it's the verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? But I learned in that affliction, in that trial, that I knew that God was good and he did good, but I did not know what good actually meant. Maybe I still don't. Because God's understanding of good and my understanding of good weren't, weren't lining up with one another. They clearly weren't the same. But what sustained me in those dark days was knowing the character of God, that when there's a discrepancy between my view of what would be good and God's view of what's good, that his is always right, that my version of good is never actually good enough. It's not my job to teach God how to be good and how to do good. We don't teach him our ways of goodness. Like, we're good and he has something to learn. No, we humbly learn goodness from him. He's the instructor. We are always the students. Teach me your statutes. That's the, that's the posture of, all, of our psalmist, right? He humbly, he joyfully accepts that God is good and that God does good. And therefore, we need to learn goodness from him. We don't teach goodness to him. If we want good judgment and true knowledge, verse 66, it's going to come from God. If we want true delight, it's going to be in him and his ways, verse 70. If we want true value and treasure, it comes from knowing God's laws, verse 72. How, how do we get there? Who knows? God has lots of tools in his box that he can train us in his goodness. For our psalmist, verse, verse uh, 67 and verse 71 say it came through affliction, and therefore the affliction was worth it in order to learn God's goodness. So Lord, teach us your ways. Teach us to be like you, to think like you, to have wisdom like you, to have a heart like yours, to be discerning like you. So often we, we insist arrogantly on our half-baked ideas of what goodness actually looks like, and we're never humble enough to accept what true goodness is. But he is good, and he does good. And so for our good, we need to humble ourselves and learn from him. The psalmist prays, teach me your statutes. Uh, other translations say, teach me your rules or your laws or your commandments or your decrees or your ways. It, it's all the same idea, right? The reason that the psalmist loves God's law, we see this especially in Psalm 119, isn't because the psalmist loves rules and keeping rules and he doesn't love regulations and red tape and having three-ring binders filled with flow charts and how you should keep the rules. Um, you know, rules about the rules and the joy of keeping rules and the disappointment of breaking them. No, our psalmist loves God. 
He knows God's heart, his character, his goodness is expressed to us through his law. And so in order to align his life with God's, in order to learn goodness, he says, I need to learn your law so I can learn to be good and to do good, to be like God, the way he was designed and created to be. It's by knowing God through his law, through his word, that we experience and we live in light of his goodness. I mean, at the beginning, I said it's easy to confess God is good. But can you imagine how delightful our lives would be if we actually lived like that was true all the time? I mean, think of the far-reaching effects that this would have to live in light of his goodness. I mean, consider, consider how we relate to our world and our circumstances, right? How much of our lives are spent murmuring and complaining and impatience and discontentment? Does, does the complaining actually bring anyone joy and satisfaction, or is it just a drain on your existence? Wouldn't our lives be filled with so much more joy and gratitude if we believe, like we sang earlier, that whatever my God ordains is right, and not only right, but also good, that your given situation that you're in right now comes from the hand of a sovereign God who designed it for your good, for your blessing, for your flourishing. In all of our murmuring and grumbling and complaining, what we're doing is we're charging God with a lack of goodness. We assume that if God were good and does good, then our lot would be different than what it actually is. I'm, it's a temptation as old as Eden, isn't it? God has some goodness that he's holding out on you. So you got to figure out a way to get it because he's not going to be good to you. But right now, whatever you lack is for your good. Whatever you have that you don't expect or don't want, it's for your good. It's not, it's not immediately pleasant. We know, no one's saying it is, but it yields a greater pleasure. So by knowing God and his goodness, we can be re-enchanted with the world around us. We, we can be people of gratitude, not of grumbling. We can praise God for everything he's given. You know, when, when my daughter, she's four, she goes out in the backyard, she is thrilled that in the middle of the boring green grass, there's these little yellow flowers. She's grateful for color. She's enchanted by beauty. Kids are. And she sees the goodness of God's hand in creation to create little, little yellow flowers to break up the monotony of green grass. She picks them. She gives bouquets to me and to her mom. Um, and, and she loves it. I see them. I got to spray for dandelions again. Apparently, it didn't take last time. I need to pull them, start grumbling. I mean, if it wasn't for Adam, we wouldn't have thorns and thistles to begin with ruining my yard. Like, dandelions are a sign of the curse. If you don't believe that, you're not reading Genesis. Because I'm a theologian, and so I grumble in very complex biblical <laughs> ways. But how good is God, right, that weeds have beauty, right? Lord willing, they're not going to survive the weekend. But in the time they do thrive in my yard, they're beautiful, they're yellow, they're whimsical, they bring joy to my daughter, right? Can, can we just take a second to think, man, 
God is good. When the weeds of this world look like flowers, let's take a minute, express thankfulness, express gratitude, be thankful for beauty, and then dig them up and put them in a bag out by the road, right? Like, let's have joy and beauty in all things, in all of our circumstances, because we see the Lord's goodness in them. Or consider how we relate to God himself, right? If God is a fountain of goodness, a sea of goodness, the origin of all goodness, if every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadows or shifting due to change, James 1, then he can't weary of doing good any more than a sea or a river can weary of flowing. It's his very nature. It's his, it's his glory to pour out that goodness. All goodness delights to communicate himself. All goodness delights to communicate itself, writes one Puritan. Infinite goodness has then an infinite delight in expressing itself. It's part of his goodness not to be weary of showing goodness. But how many times do we neglect coming to God because we have this fear that one day we'll pump the well dry? That he's generous and loving and patient now, but eventually we'll overstay our welcome and he'll get sick of doing us good. It's not how God acts, that's how we act, right? No, God delights in being good. He delights in doing good. He doesn't tire of your prayers because every time you ask him for something, he gets to communicate more and more of his goodness. God doesn't get sick of you. He's not tired of your petitions. Rather, the more you pray, the more you ask, the more he gets to kind of flex that muscle of being good. He gets to pour out more and more goodness upon you. He gets to delight in being God, right? There's, there's no place for us to think, you know, I know God's busy. I'm, I'm not going to bother him with this because that fundamentally misunderstands how much God loves being God, how much he delights in being good and pouring out goodness. I think it's fair to say God loves our prayers far more than we love praying. And so let the, the truth of God's goodness supercharge your prayer life. Be confident, be bold, be joyful to go before the throne. Approach him in light of his goodness, and he will delight in pouring out goodness upon you. Or consider finally, you know, how, how do we relate to others in light of God's goodness? Just as God's goodness causes him to love us, it should cause us to love others, to be like God to do good. I mean, if God's goodness caused Christ to leave the glories of heaven and to die for our good, then can't we sacrifice a little bit of our own convenience for the good of others? Galatians 6, uh, verse 9 and 10 exhort us, say, let's not grow weary of doing good, for in a due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are in the household of faith. And we might call this, these good works, you know, sacrifice. Or maybe we call them seeking out more of God's good, blessed joy. Because didn't Jesus say it's more blessed to give than to receive? And being good and doing good to others, we, we don't lose something. We gain something. We gain God's 
blessing. We get to be like God in limited goodness and limited doing good, but we, we reflect more and more God, our creator. You know, when we give our time and our resources and our wisdom and our encouragement and our counsel and our when we give our very selves to others, it's never a net loss for us. It's always a net gain because being like God in that moment, we begin to find joy in goodness rather than joy in selfishness and sin. And we receive his blessing on top of it. We begin to delight in the goodness of God spreading, even as it spreads onto our own selves, onto our own character. And so here's what I'm trying to get at in, our own in, our, in, in this application, right? And this is where I want to end. Our, our lives, our days, they can seem, I don't know, maybe it's the third life crisis, monotonous, typical, mundane, disappointing, suffocating, whatever the word is, you know, you go to work, you pull your dandelions, you feed your kids, you go to bed, you wake up and you do it again. Um, they don't feel that way because we think too much of the goodness of God. That's for sure. No, it's when we remember God's goodness and all that he is and that we live in light of that goodness, that we truly begin to flourish. So let us remember that God is good all the time, and that all the time, God is good.